Our reading this morning is taken from Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder what causes you fear. Spiders, lifts, flying by plane. As a young child, I had a whole catalog of fears. There was a skeleton that lived in the cupboard at the end of my bed, a troublesome seal inside my mattress, and a constant array of burglars and intruders threatening to break into our home. And as adults, we all have fears. Some of these fears are what are called existential fears, like fear of dying, fear of illness, fear of abandonment, fear of loss of livelihood. And many of them, of course, are illusory. But real or illusory, it's been well said that fear eats the soul. It undermines God's truth, and it's somehow bad for our spiritual well-being. And then there's the kind of fear which just comes in a very real way from significant life-threatening danger. And here in Psalm 34, David is on the run from Saul. He's in an enemy Philistine kingdom, He's under the king there, and he risks the possibility of betrayal and even execution. And he says in this psalm, he talks of all his troubles and all my fears. 
And then he speaks of something that is going to drive away every earthly fear. And he says he wants to teach us about this one thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Well, that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, why replace one set of fears with another? What does fear do to us? It intimidates us, it oppresses us, it clouds our thinking, it blinds our decision-making. Why is this father of our faith commending the fear of the Lord? And doesn't this play to every possible prejudice in our culture about a kind of authoritarian God who is out to get us? Is this some kind of outmoded teaching from the Old Testament which has been superseded by Jesus Christ. Well, we have to remember that of all the Old Testament figures that Jesus attributes his lineage to, it's David. He doesn't attribute his lineage to Abraham or to Moses, but to David. And at the end of this psalm, there's going to be a line which points forward to Christ's crucifixion, which speaks of legs not being broken, a really unique detail. And so in this psalm, David and Jesus are somehow inextricably woven together as they are throughout the Bible. Why then, of all things, does David want to teach us, his children, the fear of the Lord? Well, we need to begin by asking, what is it? And we think of fear as something which makes us shrink back from the person or the situation causing it. But that's not what we see in Psalm 34. The whole psalm is shot through with a tone of wonder. David is marveling. He says, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Fear of the Lord is astonished reverence before the presence of God, at a visitation of God. It's a sensitivity that we have with a beloved. I remember beginning to date my now wife, Jen, and I was kind of moving around her, you know, really concerned not to trespass in any way, making assumptions about her, just kind of orbiting her, amazed at her mystery. And we've all had this kind of experience of being in a state of wonder before someone or something precious. But the fear of the Lord is more than just wonder. The Latin for astonishment comes from the word thunderstruck. The fear of the Lord is astonished reverence. Astonished awe before God's majesty and splendor and glory. Now, we're blessed to be a church here with a relaxed atmosphere, hopefully free of religious legalism. But there's always a potential shadow side to that, that our experience of God in a Sunday service is, is one more experience between checking the kids or perhaps the sports results before the service and then enjoying our ice cream after. Biblically, when the God of holiness and justice breaks in and manifests himself. The fear of the Lord always comes in two beats. First, in a sense of God's presence 
a feeling of personal inadequacy on our part, at his perfection, his brilliance, his splendor. We, we just feel unworthy and deeply aware of our impurity. And then the warm embrace of his love flowing to us and we praise him in response. And something else, a kind of lasting fear that's to be treasured, a fear that we might grieve him in some way. You see, not every fear is negative. There's the fear that we can have that we might violate someone or something that is pure. This is Moses, hidden in the cleft in the rock, in Exodus 34, astonished as the Lord passes him by. This is Isaiah, in chapter 6 in the temple, having a vision of the Lord on his throne and seeing seraphs flying around the Lord, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah crying out, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's Daniel in Daniel 10, having a vision of the Son of Man coming to him and Daniel falling flat on his face, white with fear. This is the fear of the Lord. It's a category-defining experience. His purity, our impurity, his love, all in a matter of seconds. It's a fear challenging every wrong image that we might hold of God, particularly of God as authoritarian in some way. Any image which contradicts the truth of his holiness and love. It's a fear in which we see God as he really is and we see ourselves as we really are. It's a fear that bows us, but it doesn't come from a being that ever seeks to intimidate us. David says here, taste and see that the Lord is good. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. What are the fruits of this awe that we see in Psalm 34? David says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. As David leans into the Lord, the Lord leans in to him. The revered one leans into the one who is revering him. It's like they attract as if magnets. And the awe David feels of the majesty of God sends all David's other fears to flight. And God blesses David in this psalm with three specific antidotes to earthly fear. First of all, he brings him security in an insecure world. As I've said, David is on the run from Saul. He's being persecuted. He faces potential exposure before this enemy king. We actually learn in 1 Samuel that he feigns insanity to try and escape. And yet, resting in the fear of the Lord, he feels only freedom and peace. Now, you can see this beautifully illustrated, if you want, in that classic by Kenneth Graham, The Wind in the Willows. There's a scene in that book where Mole and Rat are on the hunt for a missing otter, the son of their friend. And they're out on the boat at night, rowing. And gradually, night turns into dawn. 
And suddenly this kind of haunting melody comes across the countryside. And they see an island and they moor the boat and they step onto the island and then into a sacred grove. And although in what follows, it's about Mole and Rat meeting a nature god, not David's god, not our god. There's something very true here which speaks to our theme. Then suddenly the Mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror, Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy, but it was an awe that smote and held him. And without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking, are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, O oh Mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. That is a beautiful description, isn't it, of the security that we feel when we're held in the living presence of God. And then the fear of the Lord brings David precious intimacy Intimacy in a world of indifferent and often brutal relationships. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. The Lord is close to the broken hearted. We feel this right reverence before God and we are met by his faithful love. The love that God has pledged throughout salvation history to his people let me illustrate this by way of a negative example. I used to be a theatre director long before I was a Christian. And one of my heroes was a theatre director who I kind of revered almost as a living God. He was a man called Peter Brook, and he's died recently in his mid-90s. I once went to Paris to see this Hindu epic, nine hours long, that Brook had directed, and it was astonishing. It was so good that when it came to Glasgow, I made the pilgrimage up there to see it too. And suddenly, there in the foyer of this theatre, during the interval, there was Peter Brook, standing by himself. And I just thought, I've got to speak to him. So I approached him, kind of quietly, slowly. His back turned to me, and I said, Mr. Brook, and he turned round slowly and he looked at me with these cold blue eyes, uh, eyes that one critic once described as twinkling ice picks. <laughs> and I, I managed to kind of stammer and stutter. I, I saw this production in Paris and it was amazing and that's why I'm here. And he just looked straight through me and he said, really? And turned briskly away. You see, I'd approached him with reverence, but I'd not been met by any love or intimacy in return. And why should he have given me that? He didn't know me from Adam. I was just a troublesome fan to be swatted away. But that is not how the God of the universe treats us and meets us. 
David says, those who look to him are radiant. Radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. An image of us with our faces upturned in worship and reflecting the radiance of God. And then the fear of the Lord releases the power of God. It releases the power of God in, an, in a world of often fallen power and misused power. David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. David uses delivers or delivered four times in this psalm. Saved or saves twice. This is a God who is jealous for our well-being, jealous for his people, and who is committed to setting them free. I spoke to a friend this week. I said to her, what does the phrase, the fear of the Lord, mean to you? She said, without batting an eyelid, that's the experience I had when I was 14. And I went to my first summer Christian camp. And out of nowhere, I was overwhelmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. I said, what did you feel? She said, awe. I said, anything else? She said, freedom. The fear of the Lord is a fear that sets us free. We often holiday in the Outer Hebrides and I always feel the presence of God on a particular island, Lewis and Harris up there, where there was an extraordinary movement of God in the mid-20th century. God just seemed to come in that place. Church and community were in a crisis condition. The church was about to collapse. And listen to what a man called Duncan Campbell, who was right at the center of this revival ministering, says was the distinguishing hallmark of that time. Revival, revival, not an evangelist, not a special effort, not anything at all organized on the basis of human endeavor, but an awareness of God that gripped the whole community. When God stepped down, suddenly men and women all over the parish were gripped by the fear of God. Isn't that what you want to see in the lives of those you love? In the lives of those in our city? And although Campbell always wanted to put attention right back on God, the spotlight on him, listen to how Campbell describes his arrival by boat on the island. He says, I was met at the pier by the minister and two of the office bearers. Just as I stepped off the boat... An old elder came over to me and faced me with this question. Mr. Campbell, can I ask you this question? Are you walking with God? Oh, here were men who meant business. Men who were afraid that a strange hand might touch the ark. Are you walking with God? Well, I was glad to be able to say, well, I think I can say this that I fear God. The dear man looked at me and said, well, if you fear God, that'll do. <laughs> that was the litmus test. God can use men and women who are bowed in astonished reverence before him because their reverence leads them deeper into submission and obedience to his law 
and his ways. They become lightning rods for the work that he wants to do on earth. I hope you're increasing in hunger to grow in this way. So how do we practically grow in the fear of the Lord? Well, David's no esoteric or kind of mystical guide in this regard. He's a very practical teacher. And the first thing to say is that you don't need to wait for some kind of mystical experience. The writer of Proverbs says of the unrighteous, they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. Living in the fear of the Lord isn't just about waiting for some kind of experience to come upon us from outside. It's a choice we make. It's a choice. And David in this psalm shows that we choose as we do three things. Firstly, as we revere God in worship. He begins the psalm, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. You see, when we recover the mystery of God in worship, we cannot but fall in awe before him. Our eyes cannot but gaze. Our lips cannot but sing. There are two dangerous counter-tendencies to living in the fear of the Lord. The one is we live in an unhealthy fear of a kind of oppressive, intimidating God. And the other is that we don't live in fear at all. We live in a kind of irreverence. Familiarity can breed contempt. When a Hollywood director called George Stevens was directing the biblical epic, The Greatest Story Ever Told, he was directing John Wayne as the Roman centurion beneath the cross of Christ. You remember that extraordinary line from the Gospels, truly, this man was the son of God. And they'd done a couple of takes, and Stevens was kind of slightly pulling his hair out at Wayne's performance, and he said, John, can you give me the line with more awe? And they reloaded the cameras, and the clapperboard went. And Wayne looked up at the crucified Christ and went, Oh, truly, this man is the Son of God. <laughs> you see, it's really easy for awe to turn into awe. It can happen in a moment to any one of us. Secondly, we grow in the fear of the Lord by revering one another. That seems kind of strange to consider. We're talking about the fear of the Lord. But David says this, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and do and pursue it. Using our tongue for evil, it runs counter to the holiness and the purity of God. But also, it violates the mystery of one another. We're God's image bearers, made by him. The American poet Walt Whitman said, I contain multitudes. And you and I all contain multitudes. Which is why we get kind of twitchy, isn't it, around anybody who tries to kind of box us in. Oh yeah, I understand you, I get you, you know. We don't like that. It doesn't feel respectful. And we're all guilty of over-familiarity with the way that we relate to one another. David asks us to come before each other in kind of reverence and purity of heart. I love this comment by a South American Nobel-winning novelist. He said of his wife after 30 years of marriage to her, 
I know her so well now that I have not the slightest idea who she really is. <laughs> now that's the sense of another person's mystery. And then thirdly, we live in the awe of Jesus Christ. Some people say that the fear of the Lord is, is just old school. It's Old Testament stuff. The New Testament is about something else. And they'll often quote the line, perfect love casts out fear. But the point is, is that perfect love is embodied in Jesus Christ. And that is why he can cast out fear. 400 years before Jesus walked this earth, the prophet Isaiah said of the coming Messiah this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus walks in a delighted fear of his father. And then he inspires that same fear and awe in others. In other words, he walks with us as a friend and one who is fully human, but he also walks with us as one who is fully divine. Think of the response of Peter when his nets threatened to break at that first meeting with Jesus. Get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. The three disciples face down on the Mount of Transfiguration before Jesus as he appears and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. John on Patmos at the beginning of the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, at the feet of the ascended Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the first and the last, the living one, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. What sort of love do we have for this Jesus? Is it an over-casual familiarity? Consider his love for us, a sacrificial love, a costly love, a love that abandoned heaven to inhabit a frail body and come upon earth, a love that endured rejection, betrayal, and crucifixion. And behind all this, a love that created the universe and that sustains it in every second. Now let us ask ourselves, what sort of love do we show for him? And what happened at the cross? One criminal on one side of him met him with fear and trembling, and the other met him with mockery, his eyes blinded to the glory of Christ. We choose whether we fear the Lord. As Jesus says, those with eyes to see will see, those with ears to hear will hear. And this is why the fear of the Lord is foundational to our faith, and it's foundational to revival, because it speaks of the God who is outside our full grasp, as well as the God who is within our grasp and fully knowable also. And so on the three Wednesday evenings in our 21 days of prayer, each evening we're going to meet and we're going to pray for revival. Because that's so often where you see the fear of the Lord come. And the fear of the Lord comes often in response to the prayers of his people. One night after ending a revival meeting on Lewis at 4 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning, because they're keen on prayer up there, Campbell discovered two to three hundred people spontaneously gathered outside a local police station. Most of them weren't Christians. They just flocked there in the middle of the night. Why? Because in one of their words, the constable 
was a God-fearing and well-saved man. And Campbell wrote this, I went along and I shall never, never forget what my eyes saw that morning and what my ears heard. Young men were kneeling by the roadside. I think just now of a group of half a dozen, one of them under the influence of drink. Willie today is a parish minister. And from the group of young men who sought the Lord that night, there are nine in the ministry today. We don't make ordination our kind of litmus test of spiritual growth, but it's interesting. God moved. My dear people, that's revival. That's God at work. And I make bold to say in passing, that is the crying need of the Christian church today. Not effort on the basis of human endeavor, but a manifestation of God. If you know, young men, you know that them falling to their knees in spontaneous adoration and praise is not usual behavior. But anything is possible when the presence of God comes and people meet it with the fear of the Lord. And this is what we long to see in Oxford, what we believe we've been seeing the first signs of in recent months, and why we're going to meet to pray. So let's pray, friends, in these next weeks for revival as a sign of what is promised in Scripture, that the knowledge of the glory of God will one day fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let's come before the Lord, united in this way, and let's choose to walk in the fear of the Lord. Amen? Amen.